Father, you've made us to sing about something terribly exclusive, that Christ alone is our way to you, that Christ alone is our answer to death, that Christ alone is the place where we may find hope and that there is no other hope outside of him. And yet we thank you for this exclusive, beautiful truth that makes us sing because it is itself an invitation into the truth. It's an invitation into Christ. It's an invitation to find all of our hope in him. And we thank you that when we come to Christ, we actually find that we need nothing else. We find there a cross where all of our sins are taken and we find the resurrection where we have the hope of new life and we have the promise of his glorious return and a new creation on the other side. So we thank you for all that you have given us, all that you have given to all of us in Christ alone this morning. Father, as we turn now to your word, we consider that the whole of the scriptures testifies to this glorious, exclusive, beautiful, and all-encompassing gospel. And that even what was written in former days in our Old Testament, our long Old Testament, our ancient and at times obscure and frustrating Old Testament, as far away as we are from the events that have happened, those things that are written down for us are written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of those very scriptures, we might have hope. So give us that hope this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please take your copy of God's word with me and open to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis will be in chapter 27 and 28 this morning. We'll read all of chapter 27 here in a few moments and the second half of chapter 28 toward the end of the morning. The book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. So if you don't have a Bible with you and you're new to the scriptures, there's a copy provided for you just in front of you there. You can take it, open it up to the first, the first volume, the book of Genesis, and make your way to chapter 27. We'll read there in a moment. Well, in our home, there's a, there's a new baby. She's almost four months old. I keep calling her, I keep calling the baby Shay. Shay is my other baby who's now eight years old. I'm getting my kids' names mixed up. I am becoming my aunt to my own kids. It's a common enough experience even to kind of tick through all of the names of the children and then to make up other names on your way to getting it, getting it right. Well, in today's passage, we have a very different kind of recognition problem, certainly different stakes involved. Let's read together. Genesis chapter 27. Buckle up. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons your quiver and your bow. Go out to the field and hunt some game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. 
go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, uh, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she'd prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. And so he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought with him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. And so he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob was scarcely out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. 
And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. And stay with him a little while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be reft of you, be reft of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? On Friday night, our elders began their Friday and Saturday annual fall retreat. Uh, it's a bit of praying and praising God and, and playing. Sometimes we bowl. Sometimes we go to the racetrack. <clears throat> One Dan Rundle has uh, an award. I believe that Kevin Johnson has an award. So you could ask him to wear them on a future Sunday. It's a little medal. It's his first, second, or third place. There are pictures in multiple phones in this room of what happened Friday night on the racetrack. And we also plan a bit, as we did on Saturday. But in the praying, we sit in a circle and we pray and we read scripture and we testify to what God is doing in our lives and how he is working in our life. Sinners that we are, sufferers as we are. Psalm 103 was read. We opened the service with that one. No one read Genesis chapter 27. Why didn't anyone read Genesis chapter 27, this blessed chapter? For obvious reasons. Last week's chapter was super encouraging. This week, Isaac, last week, Isaac was assured, I will be with you. And a second time, I am with you. And a third time, on the lips of Abimelech, the Lord has surely been with you. In this chapter, the Lord is nowhere to be found except taken in vain once in the form of blasphemy. This is a terribly discouraging chapter. It seems fruitless, pointless. Let's keep going. What is it for entertainment? Like one of those shows you watch where a family's at each other's throats and you think, well, I'm just glad that's not me. 
And if you're a good Christian, you weep when you watch that kind of a show. You can hardly watch it. There's nothing to celebrate in watching people's lives come apart. Well, what is this? We hardly recognize the characters before us, at least from the page before. Some things have definitely changed. Um, Isaac is much older, so he's an old man. His eyesight is hardly there anymore. Spiritual sensitivity has changed as well. On the other hand, some things have not changed. The theme of blessing remains. I said this blessed chapter, 23 times the word bless or blessing appears. That theme pervades this cursed chapter. The blessing itself, its content, is outlined twice in two different poems. Certainly the theme of sin has not changed, except that it's gotten completely out of hand here. Story ends, at least this chapter, with one brother chasing another down with a knife. We've kind of seen that before. We know it in our lives to some extent. We know it when we read the news headlines. This is in some ways a microcosm of what's happening on the world stage. And it was for Israel as she read it for the first time. Why is this chapter here? We might think it's merely an instructional lesson on how to get along as family uh, by way of contrast. There are some takeaways, no doubt, under the surface of the text. Why is this passage here, though? When we ask that, we don't just mean, why is it in the Bible? We ask, why is it here in the Bible, like here in the story, and not later and not before? We'll get to that before we're done. For now, let's just mosey our way through the story, as painful as it is, seen at a time. This can be organized naturally by character. You don't have any more than two characters in a scene at once, and there's a focal point on one at a time. So we're just going to move from one character to the next and work our way through the story and meditate on it together. Isaac's at the end of his life, and that is where we begin this morning with Isaac's dim plot. Verses 1 through 4, Isaac's dim plot. He is old, he can't see, not allowed to drive. Some of you laugh. But he is more than dim. He is more than dim visually. And it comes out here in what he believes to be his last moments and the official passing of his his will, his, his this blessing. And we read here, he called Esau his older son. He called Esau his older son. And as we read this opening line, we think maybe nothing of it. Maybe nothing of it. What's wrong with calling to Esau his older son? Well, there's a few things wrong with that. In the first place, Isaac is plotting against his wife. She's not in the room. The two of them have had their favorites. We'll come back to that. But he is operating solo right now in this marriage. He knows what he's doing. He is going to throw a grenade into what he has left of his relationship with dear Rebecca. Secondly, he's plotting against his older son, Jacob. He's going against a legal arrangement that his sons have already made. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, fair and square, even if under extraneous circumstances, it was done. And that sale came with an oath, a legal oath. Doesn't he want his boy Esau to keep his oath? As they say, it's not the oath that gives credibility to the man, but the man who gives credibility to the oath. And here Esau is happy to go against his own oath. 
It's just going to throw a grenade in the relationship with his son, Jacob, and in the relationship between Jacob and Esau, and he knows better. Maybe he doesn't know about the sale of the birthright. I'd be surprised, but it doesn't matter. Remember how he prayed for his barren wife, Rebecca, so many years earlier? Remember how she inquired of the Lord? Remember how the Lord gave them a child and in her difficult pregnancy? Remember what the Lord said to her when she had a scuffle in her womb? In Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so when, he, when Isaac calls for his older son and speaks of plans to bless, he knows what he's doing. If a doctor gives you this kind of an explanation for, for pain in the course of a pregnancy, get a new doctor. Two nations are in your womb. The older is going to serve the younger. Mm. Jacob may not know about Esau's oath, but, but excuse me, Isaac may not know about Esau's oath, but he does know about the Lord's oracle. The older would serve the younger. Human convention would not reign in this move, this transfer of blessing from Isaac down a generation. It would go to Jacob on God's sovereign choice before either were born, before either had done a thing good or bad. And Isaac knew it. And so Isaac was plotting against the Lord himself. That Esau had married outside the people of God and the last comment before this chapter begins says that he had caused great trouble for mom and dad just puts this in a darker light. Abraham went to length to ensure that Isaac would marry from within the people of God, sending his servant far away and securing Rebekah. But this was at this time no difference to Isaac. So he, if you will, chucks a grenade into God's plan. Lots of grenades going off. He's not aging well. He's a man of contradictions. On the one hand, he knows what he's got. He knows what he's got. He's got the blessing of God, the one promised to Abraham. Before this story is over, we're going to hear it on his lips, all that it entails. The promises of God given to Abraham of blessing for all the families of the earth. More recently, clarified lands would be given to his people. And a particular offspring, singular, would come from his offspring, plural, and be the one to crush the serpent's head. Everything God would do by way of blessing for the world would come through one man in his family, and it was through Abraham, and then down through Isaac, and it was to go down through Jacob. Later, he'll speak of smelling the promise of the promised land on his son. He knows what he's got. He has, if you will, the key to history and the universe. He knows what he's got on the one hand. On the other hand, the blessing has become bigger to him than the God who has given it. The biggest thing in his field of view, and this is always what happens, no matter what great gift from God you put before him, the biggest thing in his field of view is not the promise 
of God, even God himself, but a plate of food in the face of his son that he likes more than the other one. This is a sad moment. Who's going to stop him? Given his adoration for Esau, and now you can see his commitment to see Esau receive this blessing, who is going to stop him? Given his apparent spiritual insensitivity, who is going to draw his will to bless Jacob instead? Who better than his wife, Rebecca, resourceful, smart, beloved Rebecca, the one who comforted Isaac after his mother's death, whom the Lord had given to him. We move from Isaac's dim plot now to Rebecca's delicious scheme. Rebecca's delicious scheme. This is verses 5 through 17. Where was she? Well, she was behind the tent flap. They are thin in tents. She can hear everything. This was probably her habit in old age. No doubt she knew this moment of blessing was coming, and she had her ear to the tent flap to make sure she didn't miss it. The two of them didn't trust each other alone with the children as it is, it seems. On first glance, Isaac's plot looked more like his prerogative, but it wasn't, as we've seen. And on first glance, Rebecca's desire here, what she schemes, looks like a wrong desire, but it is actually not all wrong. She had as many reasons to want Jacob to receive the blessing as Isaac had bad reasons for wanting Esau to receive it. God promised it to Jacob and she knew it. Jacob purchased the birthright fair and square and she probably knew it. And Esau forfeited his role as the firstborn with respect to the blessing by marrying the women that he had married. In other words, she and Jacob had legitimate cause in this moment. What they want, God wants. Does she inquire of the Lord as she did so many years earlier? There's something to say for trials to put us on our knees. In old age, this couple has gotten lethargic. They have gotten lazy. This is embarrassing. It doesn't have to be that way. But it is for Rebecca. She does not inquire of the Lord. She does not pray in her distress. She does not pray even when she has just cause here. Instead, she manipulates. She uses her gifts of perception and hard work to cook up a delicious scheme. Did you notice how many times delicious food is mentioned? It took me a few reads to notice it. When you first read through two chapters, your mind is fixing on a thousand different points. And your interest and imagination is running down different trails. And it takes a few passes for some things to start to stand out. And I will hold those out for you in the reading. I hope you noticed it. Delicious food mentioned six times. Game is mentioned seven times. That is what Esau would hunt. What's up with all the food? Well, it goes way back. Remember this in Genesis 25, 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. <laughs> so the note, this is the one note we get on uh, that relationship early on between Isaac and his son Esau is, Isaac loved to eat the food that boy killed. Isaac was a man of God, but he has become a man of the fridge. Now his God is his belly. Isaac has a problem with food. Rebecca has a problem with manipulation. 
They both have a problem with favoritism. These sins are all related. A little more from that same passage two chapters earlier. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, liked to stay inside. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah, she loved Jacob. And you'll notice in this story, Isaac says to Esau, my son. And Rebekah says to Jacob, my son. We might not think anything of that because I might say to one of my daughters, have three, my daughter, and that doesn't indicate some type of favoritism, except that the narrator accents this by reinforcing the preference, speaking in terms of his son and her son. The favoritism has persisted and it's gotten uglier. It's fine to have different relationships with each of our children. God has made us all different. He's made them different. That's not what this is. At the bottom of this is selfishness, a world where self is at the center in the place where God belongs. And this selfishness merely attaches to different things to feed itself, to grow, to satisfy itself. This selfishness is attaching itself to the object of a child. Woe to the child who is the object of a parent's idolatry as they feed their own selfishness. You might have been that one. Make God your God. Self is a really bad God. Think about what these two are willing to do to each other at this point in their marriage. Isaac knows full well that blessing Esau and Jacob will destroy Jacob and Rebekah. Rebekah knows full well that tricking Isaac like this will destroy Isaac and Esau. They are set against each other in this house. They're going nuclear over the blessing of God. God is nowhere in the chapter. He does not enter. He does not appear. He is not consulted. He is only referenced. It is just themselves. Praise God when he restrains sin. He let it go here. And sometimes he lets it go. Like even Sarah before her, Rebecca initiates deception. But Jacob here is called the deceiver. He's the deceiver. He's the one deceiving in himself. And this story of chapters 25 through 36 is his story. A little bit of character development here. But he's not stupid. He has questions about the plan. Like he loves his mom. But come on. Behold, uh, mom, my brother Esau is hairy and I'm smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. He calls it mockery. He's right, but that's not even his concern. His concern is how he gets out of this thing. She has already considered this. Let the curse be on me. You obey my voice. That's what sin sounds like. You do what I say. Here's what it looks like. Watch the verbs, verse 14. So he went and he took them and he brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Execute. 
She thought it, desired it. Now she's on the move, and he's on the move. They're going to do this. As it's been said, exploit one's old brother is bad enough to deliberately deceive one's own father. Now senile, physically incapacitated, is to stoop even lower. There is no fear of dad here. He's old and frail. But that's because there is no fear of God here. We move from Isaac's dim plot to Rebecca's delicious scheme now to Jacob's blasphemous deception. What else can we call it? Verses 18 through 29. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Why would he ask that question? He didn't have any problem identifying Esau earlier. He didn't have a retina scanner at his tent flap that went off. He had different voices he recognized. And his hearing is good enough to tell. We have to wonder if he didn't expect to get played. Well, he says he's Esau, but is he really? He knows his kids and he knows his house. We have here four questions and four lies, four questions that engage all the senses, four questions that expose Isaac's commitment to make sure he does not bless Jacob, but Esau. And we have four questions to expose Jacob's willingness to deceive in order to get the blessing of God. Follow these with me and let's count. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Question number one, who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Slide number one. Here's question number two. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Oh, that was quick. Very spiritual. Lie number two. Will he keep going? Question three, when Isaac said to Jacob, come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because the hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Uh, But he said, are you really my son Esau? Another question. And he said, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him. He's going to eat first, of course, a little wine, something to drink. And the blessing will go to Jacob, the cheater. He came near and kissed him. And when he was that close, he could smell. He could smell the garments and he blessed him. See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. I mean, there it is. He knows what he's got. His imagination is filled with the land of promise, just not the Lord of the land of the promise. The blessing includes fertility in the land. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, political supremacy. Let the peoples serve you. You be Lord over your brothers and the blessing and the cursing. All of history, all of humanity will turn on you. Jackpot. He takes home the universe. And he has played his dad. And so as they should have expected, the fourth movement here, Esau's murderous rage, verses 30 through 46. 
As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of his father, Esau came in. You can see him passing, no eye contact. Hey, bro, hey, bro. <laughs> they try not to talk anyway. Anyway, Jacob's like muddling around the house like he always does. He's taken off some of the stuff, not to catch any attention here. He must have been quick if they did pass each other. Esau's got an animal under his arm, dragging it behind him maybe. Now we're about to see what two men do when their idols are taken away, Isaac. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And he shook violently when he said that, shaking and trembling. And Esau, when he heard the words of his father, cried out with an exceedingly great cry, tearing the earth open with his tears. And now we get a conversation. We've heard a conversation, a little back and forth between dad and son number two. And now we have a conversation, a little back and forth between dad and son number one. And this is a conversation in which Esau is begging for the blessing. Is there anything left? Is there anything you can give me at all? The answer is no. And all he hears is that now he's going to serve his brother and the thing is done. Cursed be my brother. Of course he's named Jacob. Heel grabber. He cheated me twice. He's blame shifting. He doesn't recognize his own culpability. He's told himself this story a thousand times. He is clear in his mind. Hebrews will say he was unholy and despised his birthright. And so he did. And a final appeal. Have you but one blessing? Bless me also. And the blessing that he gets is inverted from his brothers. He's going to be cast away and live by the sword And we're going to have trouble between these kids for a good long time. He can't even eke out a blessing for his son, though he would want to, opens his mouth, and this is what comes out. And so Esau hated Jacob and set himself to kill his brother. Rebecca hears it. She hatches another scheme. She's so quick. She's on it, on the spot, knows just what to tell each of them to Jacob Your brother's going to comforting himself by planning to kill you. Now get out of here. Go to Laban, my brother's house. Stay there a while and I'll send for you when everything is calmed down over here. She can't say that to Isaac. To Isaac, she says, I loathe myself because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of those Hittite women like these, like Esau has done, what good will my life be to me? She's brilliant. And that... Is chapter 27. It sure is an emotional chapter, but it's hard to feel for any of these characters. It's embarrassing. It's sick. It's the worst of what we may have known in part in our lives, and it's what we pray against for ourselves. What is the lesson in all of this? Is it a moral lesson about deception? Is it a lesson about the destructive effects of sin on our relationships? With a narrow lens on the passage, of course, this is not the life of faith that we're observing before us. This is what sin looks like when it runs its course in a family and when a human being exchanges the glory of God for anything that he has made, even good things that he has made, like delicious food. Any God but God will shrink your soul, will shrink your vision, and will leave you with rage at your brother. Yes, it does instruct us about the destructive effects of human 
sin and how human sin works in our social relationships. With a narrow lens, we can see that clearly. But if we zoom out a bit to see these chapters, this chapter, between either chapters on either side, there's a more central lesson, I think, a lesson for why this chapter is here. Remember the question, why is this chapter here? And so we turn to chapter 28, and we find here the Lord's surprising assurance, the Lord's surprising assurance. At the beginning of chapter 28, Jacob thinks that what Rebekah has suggested is pretty good. He needs to, to send his son away to find a wife among the people of God. He, he speaks to his son, Jacob, this blessing, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples, a company of peoples. We see the expansion of the promise here, not just a nation, but over nations. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Isaac knows exactly what he's doing. His mind is clear in his old age. And thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aran to Laban. And so there will Jacob be. And Rebekah was brilliant in how she hatched this thing, and it has happened exactly as she wanted it. He leaves with this blessing. God has a wonderful plan for Jacob's life, and it will include a stay at Uncle Laban's place, as we will see. Now to verse 10. Jacob is on his way traveling to Uncle Laban's. He's a homebody away from home, and he's a hunted man. He has not been visited by God like his forefathers were. Neither has he called on God like his forefathers did in their best moments. He leaves Beersheba finds a place to stay, and when the sun goes down, he puts a rock under his head, and he goes to sleep under the same sky filled with stars that Abraham looked to as God pointed to those stars and said, so shall your descendants be. He lays there with his head on a rock, alone, hunted, away from home, and he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. Verse 12, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and on the top of it, reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in it you and your offspring shall and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. The first thing we notice is a problem of recognition. Isaac didn't recognize Jacob. And then he didn't recognize Esau. And here Jacob basically says, who are you? <laughs> uh, this is God's place and I didn't know it. 
There's a few indications of unfamiliarity here. He's afraid. We have a guilty conscience like Adam hiding from God. He didn't know this was God's place. Second thing we notice isn't a problem of recognition, but it's an absence of correction. Uh, There's no rebuke here. Well, whatever happened to chapter 27? (laughs) I mean, for real. Chapter 27 was really bad. He was called a deceiver. Heel grabber is his name. He's getting a reputation, kind of. And then God drops drops in 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 a dream and gives him this. There's no rebuke. Quite the opposite. Divine assurance. I will be with you. And he assured him of this from his past to his future. From that place where he lay his head on a rock to the four corners of the earth. And he assured him of this, that he would be with him from his very person down to all of mankind. It is true that all of God's promises and plans will get funneled through him. And he has the assurance that it will be the case. And friends, by assuring Jacob of this, he assured the first Israelite readers just the same. And so we zoom out again. Israel had a reason to feel like God might not be with them or might not keep his promises or finish what he started until he was done doing what he'd promised or be with them every single place that they go. They had reason to feel that and to think that between Egypt and Sinai and in the land filled with peoples. And when they were denied safe passage and were under the threat of the peoples of Edom, who were the descendants of Esau. So how do you read chapter 27 now? Here's Esau and Jacob. Jacob, whose name will be Israel, from whom the 12 tribes come. Jacob, their forefather. And Esau, it all goes back here. And who could thwart God's plan? The worst of Israel's leaders won't thwart God's plan. And neither will the worst of Israel's enemies thwart God's plan. None of that. This chapter is about the transfer of the blessing from Isaac to Jacob. And it is more deeply a chapter about the God who secures the transfer of his blessing to all of his people. Despite every apparent threat. The point. God has given us this story in order to assure us that no human scheme can derail his plans to bless. And when you hear that word bless, don't think of the little hummel in your living room. Don't think of the stuff they used to sell in the Lifeway Christian bookstore. I thank God for Lifeway. Most of what was in those bookstores. Think about all of God's saving plans and everything good he ever promised to a sinner. Shorthand, blessing. To reconcile himself to man and take away all of the sin on the page in chapter 27. He did it here. He would not let his plan be thwarted. And he would do it again. For there was another suspenseful event in God's plan where the blessing seemed to be lost, where all parties conspired against it, including Israel's leaders. In Acts 4.27, it was preached like this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod 
one. Pontius Pilate, party number two, along with all the Gentiles, party number three, and the peoples of Israel, party number four, to do whatever your plan and uh, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Excuse me, that was a prayer. And in the preaching, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, that one God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so when things looked dim and when the greatest scheme was hatched and when the lights all went way out, when Jesus hung on a cross, when God's presence actually departed from his true and obedient son, God's promise was not only safe from human schemes, but beautifully accomplished through them. The cross is the true stairway to heaven. And there is none other. That dream, it's as though we took a ladder and stuck it on the ground of the earth and threw it up to heaven. I think I might have some extra attic room above my garage. But I don't know because there's no hole there. But there's a window. If you look at my house, there's a window. I think if I can see through that window, I'll be able to tell what I've got up there. So I threw a ladder. It's one story and I couldn't even make it up halfway. I'm sorry. There were kids all over the place and I was being impatient trying to get this done. I put my iPhone on a long stick to like video inside there. It's a ladder up to heaven. You're not getting to the top. No one's getting to the top. You're not getting to heaven on a ladder of any kind, of human achievement, of who you know, of how many rungs of church you've achieved. I don't care what your pedigree is around here. I don't care what you've done in service. I don't care how many worship services you've been to. I don't care what you come to around here. The only way to heaven, and God cares about our participation with his people. Don't hear that the wrong way. We're talking about how we get to God. The only way to heaven is the only staircase there is. And it appeared here in a dream As the plan of God unfolds, we come to find it is a cross. It is Jesus himself, the way, the truth, and the life. You need look only farther than chapter 27 to put your hope somewhere besides humanity and yourself. Put it in the God who appears to Jacob the deceiver in the night and says, I promise to get this done. God and all of heaven For all of heaven was going up and down that ladder. God in all of heaven is intent on seeing this plan to completion. The thing does end well. And so it will. And when it does, the Lord will not say, who are you? And neither will we. And we won't be afraid of him on that day. For we'll be his. Well, where is this story headed? It's headed to Laban's house. Jacob will be free from his brother's knife, but he will be under the Lord's sanctifying scalpel. The Lord saves by grace, and he doesn't finish us with forgiveness to now speak in our experience of conversion. He doesn't finish us at the point of justification, but he sees us all the way to glory. He's working on us all, and we will see how he works on us in the story of Jacob. Let's pray. 
Father, we are alarmed by what we find on the page in the mirror of the word of God as we see our own sin playing itself out in the lives of characters who really lived, who had heard you speak to them, who knew your promises in ways that at least feel more direct and real than a printed page, but are no less real than a printed page. And we consider what we're capable of, and we consider that every human agent involved in this story was determined to undo the plan or secure it by some human means. And none of your plan will be advanced by mere human means. And so we thank you that you get your own job done, that you get this promise done, and that you have gotten it done through your son, the Lord Jesus. For there was no human covenant partner who could represent us except the divine human son who came down to represent us and did so on a cross where he takes away our sin. Father, would you make us a church that does not depend on human schemes or human ways for our work, but depends on you because we recognize the kind of work that we are about. It is the resurrection from the dead it is the eyes opened that were blind. It is the lame who would leap. We are speaking spiritually here in prayer. Father, the things that we need you to do, the things that we sing about that you have done in us, the very gathering that you have created in this heavenly assembly of your people here at Heritage is a divine miracle. And it is all yours. And it is the result of no human scheme. In fact, it was brought about to make that very point. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for your divine plan to bring salvation to us. We'll sing about it now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.